0: Information that you receive on exclusively inclusive podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition. The specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. The University of California, San Francisco, has even said in their guidelines that the risk with ethanol estradiol, which is found in contraceptives, has a higher risk of blood clot than what we're giving out patients for hormone replacement therapy. So that means cisgendered females who are on oral contraceptives have a higher risk of blood clot than trans women. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive. Your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Aaron Everett. Well, happy new year, everyone. Welcome to 2020. Hopefully everybody had a great holiday, whatever holiday you do or do not celebrate. At least I hope that all my listeners got a little time to relax and unwind before we headed into 2020. It's already off to an interesting start for a lot of people. Um, So hopefully we have our goals set. We're ready to conquer a new year. And, you know, goals don't always necessarily have to be these dramatic transformations. However... They could be, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you about today's subject. Today, we're going to be talking to you about feminization hormone replacement therapy. So, I know it's a much desired topic. I have a lot of questions about it. Um, what does the feminizing process look like? What are the hormones entailed? Why do we use certain medications over others? So today I'm going to be walking you through that process. And I strongly encourage anybody listening who may have questions about what I'm talking about today to contact me at Aaron at exclusively inclusive podcast.com. That's Aaron at exclusively inclusive podcast.com. We're going to be covering a lot of information today. So bear with me. I'll try and make it as interesting as possible. But I think for most listeners who are interested in this subject, you'll be very much involved and take notes. And like I said, if there's anything that you have clarification points on, please do not hesitate to let me know. One of the important things I want to point out is... All the information I'm presenting, as I've stated before, they're the opinions of my own. Um, I practice within the guidelines. If I'm doing something, I have a guideline to support it. As a nurse practitioner, I do have to be careful about the type of medicine that I'm providing my patients because, you know, there's just more of a chance of having to defend the way that I practice, being a nurse practitioner here in conservative Georgia. But also, I feel more comfortable practicing within the guidelines because if I'm taking a risk... I don't want to take a risk with my patient's life. I'll take a risk with, like, my finances or something like that. Uh, something a little less detrimental to others involved, rather than the way that I practice medicine. So... I just want you to know that at the end of the podcast um, and on the podcast page, we'll be listing a different resources. If you have further questions or if you want to go and look at those guidelines, every guideline that I use and refer to has multiple references to different studies. Um So it's very well researched and literature based. None of this I'm just pulling out of a hat. So definitely keep that in mind. There's multiple different resources that I'll be referring to today and pulling content from. And that's what I do in my daily practice because there's more than one way to practice uh, transgender medicine and uh, medicine for the gender diverse community. So I lean on all the different guidelines because some I prefer over others. Some are more conservative than others. And so between all of them, I have kind of carved out my own area and figured out what works for my patients and what I get the best results with. Now, if you're sitting there listening, thinking, well, my provider's not doing that, that may not be a problem unless you feel like you're not getting good results with your transition then you can use the material to go back and have a conversation with them because there might be a reason why they're not doing the things that I'm talking about you might have an underlying health condition that you're not aware of that could be or that you are aware of the health condition but what you're not aware of is how it might impact their dosing so it's really important again not to just self-alter your regimens Um, this is just used for informative purposes and as a guideline not to actually replace how you're receiving care right now in your current treatment plans okay so with all that in mind let me walk you through what it might look like should you come into my clinic for a visit wanting to transition from being assigned male at birth and identifying as female our clinic utilizes informed consent I have talked about informed consent on uh, previous episodes however I'll give you a brief rundown again for those who may not have heard that one informed consent is a process of where me the provider will sit down with you the patient and go over all the risks and benefits to feminizing hormone replacement therapy and just a side note there will be a separate episode on masculinizing hormone replacement therapy so uh, for those of you listening wondering why i'm not addressing that i plan on addressing that in a separate episode so Again, it's a process where I can sit down and talk to you about the risks and benefit of each medication used, go over your health history, and just make sure that I'm assessing your readiness to pursue hormones. The Fenway Institute for Health bare minimum requirement is reflective of what the DSM says. So candidates for hormone replacement therapy must demonstrate a consistent and persistent gender variant identity that meets criteria for gender dysphoria as categorized by the DSM-5. If significant mental or medical health conditions are present, they must also be reasonably well controlled. So what does that mean for you? That basically means that, you know, if you have some underlying uh, mental health uh, disorder, and I'm not just talking about like run-of-the-mill depression and anxiety that can easily be managed by primary care but if like a more severe uh, mental or psychiatric uh, issue, then we want to make sure that those are well controlled because adjusting your hormones could cause those um, underlying conditions to react and flare and cause you significant uh, issues in your interpersonal relationships in your job and everything else. So that's what we don't want. So we want to make sure that if those are there for you, then we make sure that they're well controlled. The other thing is what they're talking about is medical conditions. So During that first appointment when I'm speaking with you and going over the informed consent, before we even really go over the informed consent, I've already gone through a detailed past medical history uh, evaluation, your social history, which includes any substances that you may use, your occupation, where you live, if you live by yourself or with somebody else. Your sexual health history and sexual habits, preferences, um, and that also lets us uh, know if you need to uh, engage in some STI screenings or other wellness exams. And then we also go over family history to make sure there's nothing significant in your family history that would um, be cause for concern as it pertains to hormones. So all that is part of the informed consent. And then when we go through the risks and benefits of uh, feminizing hormone replacement therapy and you still want to proceed, you're also agreeing to keep your follow-up appointments. Because it's really important for me as the provider that I can keep a close eye on you to make sure you're having a safe and successful transition. Okay, first thing I'm gonna be covering is the medications used for the feminization process. And then I'll be going over some of the risks to those medications that we do keep in consideration. And then I'll be going the onset and desired effect um, that the hormones will have physically and expected timeframes for changes. So as you may know, estrogen is a key component of the feminization process. Without it, we won't be able to see any feminizing effects even if we suppressed testosterone. So the most primary class of estrogen that we use for feminization is 17-beta-estradiol. This is like a bioidentical form of estrogen, and so it's the safest form. In previous years, we used a synthetic form of estrogen but we saw a lot more complications and this was many years ago but the synthetic forms increase the um, risks of blood clot and other such things so with the 17 beta estradiol we saw a huge reduction in side effects so most of my patients are receiving this form of estrogen orally through pills however it is also available through injectables and patches And most of the time, I prescribe the pills because they're readily available, they have a very predictive course of feminization, and they're affordable. A lot of the commercial plans are paying for them, but even when they're not, we do have, again, those copay savings programs that I've mentioned before that allow patients access to this type of hormone. And you'll hear patients talking about how they take the oral pill under the tongue, it's really not necessary. I'm not sure if anyone listened to my Fenway Highlights uh, podcast, but in that I mentioned that the risk of liver toxicity was eliminated. They've done more research, so it's not liver toxic. A lot of people were putting it under their tongue to avoid the first pass effect, which basically avoids uh, direct liver processing for the medication. Well, that's completely unnecessary. It's not designed to be put under the tongue. So people were spending a lot of time waiting for these meds to dissolve and could end up with ulcerations under their tongue, this, that, and the other. So my best recommendation is just to swallow your pills the starting dose for estradiol varies greatly. Um, it depends on your past medical history depends on the prescriber and desired effects. You know, basically what I'm speaking to right now is for people looking for a full feminization process. However, I do have a lot of nonconforming gender diverse and non-binary folks who are getting low dose hormones. And so, um, we dose those differently, but for right now I'll just be speaking to full, um, transitional hormone doses. So what we typically start with at our clinic is um, the two milligram tablets. We do two tablets in the morning and one in the evening. This is done so that we can get a good loading dose of hormones and also kind of mimic what the ovaries would do, right? Because cis females don't just have estrogen being uh, secreted in the morning. So taking a once-a-day dose of estradiol doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and honestly, just doing it once a day can often lead to more mood disturbances, fatigue, um, and all the, like, the negative things that can occur with hormone replacement therapy. Whereas if we do the twice-a-day dosing because of the half-life or how long the estradiol hangs out in your bloodstream, in your system, um, patients seem to have more like stable moods. Uh, healthier energy levels better libidos than those doing once daily so that's the typical starting dose now the maximum dose is orally is eight milligrams per day Um, occasionally i do have to put somebody up on eight milligrams per day but that's totally dependent on subjective findings of their transition and also what their serum studies show which means their blood work because we're checking your hormone through your blood work The other forms of estrogen that we mentioned uh, was the transdermal or the patches. So estrogen patch um, dosed in micrograms instead of milligrams. Those I don't typically prescribe at the beginning of a transition. Um, I find it harder to get higher levels with them, anecdotally. So that means lower levels of estrogen means less feminizing effect. It does tend to be safer when it comes to you know blood clot risk and things like that. But if we can't get you your levels higher, then you're not going to have the desired feminizing effects. I do have some non-binary patients who take the patches so we can just get their uh, levels up a little bit and that seems to work well. But again, sometimes depending on where you're living, the patches can be cost prohibitive. There's definitely a lot of other more progressive liberal areas than where I'm located at where patches are very readily available and commercial insurance payers in those states are covering it. It has not been the case for where I'm practicing so just keeping that in mind, a lot of your options are also going to be based on your location. The other form of estradiol that is very popular that a lot of people ask me about is estradiol valeriate. That is an injectable form of estrogen. It is mixed with an oil and is injected into the muscle either once a week or once every two weeks depending on your dose. You know, the typical starting dose would be 10 milligrams per week. So whether you're doing it every two weeks or once a week, you're going to get the same dose. It's just going to be given higher if it's every two weeks or we we'll cut it in half and inject every week. And that's really just patient preference on administration and then how they feel after their injections. The maximum dose for estradiol valeriate is considered 20 milligrams per week. And this is basically what the University of California, San Francisco has posted in their guidelines. I find their hormone dosing to be much more in line with uh, the way that I practice, which is why I kind of uh, lean on them and refer to them. And I always check to make sure that their guidelines haven't changed. They do have a lot of evidence-based literature to support the way that they dose things. They seem to be slightly more progressive than the other governing boards that we look to, especially when it comes to dosing. And so my patients typically have really good transitions with the di- the dosing that I'm utilizing. Now, the final form of estrogen is um, the estradiol cypionate. The biggest difference between the v- valeriate and the cipionate is their bioavailability and the oils that they're mixed with and the dosing. So, um, you know, estradiol cypionate is dosed at about two milligrams every two weeks and so because of the carrier oil that it's in, you know, it's more concentrated form of estradiol and it's recommended that we inject it every two weeks. I don't have a lot of patients using this type of injectable. It tends to be a little bit more expensive than the Valeri in our experience and also just less available. The downside of the injectables in general is often the the people manufacturing them and the oils that they mix them with tend to go on back order. And so it happens, I don't know, I feel like it happens once every three months or so where my patients call in they can't get a hold of they can't get um, any refills on their injectable uh, or what we call evim astral valeriate intramuscular they can't get their evim so they're going back on oral until it becomes uh, more available you know and so they might cycle between oral and injectable every so often just based on the availability of the prescription itself Hey everyone! I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews. which. What that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. In addition to providing estrogen, it's also really important that we block the testosterone. Now, estrogen itself is definitely um, a strong androgen blocker. However, um, when given by itself, it is a lot harder to suppress the testosterone. So it doesn't do it 100%. And often after people have been on hormones for a long time and their testosterone has stayed suppressed, we're able to kind of wean back on the other um, anti-androgens that we use and so that we can minimize the side effects of those drugs and just kind of rely more heavily on estradiol to continue to block the testosterone. So probably the most popular androgen uh, blocker is spironolactone. It is a diuretic, also holds onto potassium. So that's one thing that we monitor while patients are on it. It's affordable, it's readily available. It's most often prescribed as an initial starting dose, 50 milligrams twice a day. However, at um, our clinic, we have Basically, come up with 100 milligrams twice a day because that's where we get the most added benefit. If for some reason, when we check the baseline testosterone level, it already started very low, we can usually drop that dose. But for most people wanting to feminize, dropping the testosterone is harder to do with the 50 milligrams twice a day. You know, a very initial low dose would be 25 milligrams daily. But And this is, again, per the um, University of California, San Francisco's guidelines, But that would be very hard to achieve testosterone suppression at that dose. That might be more suitable for someone who identifies as non-binary. Not only is like once a day dosing not ideal because of the half-life, only 25 milligrams. We use more than that just to stop, um, you know, cis females and cis men from getting acne. We use higher doses than that. So it's definitely not going to have a significant impact on the testosterone levels at that dose. One of the other ones that we can add in sometimes is finasteride. Um, A lot of people know about this drug for male pattern hair loss, but it also does uh, block a type of testosterone. And so often we do give it and offer it to trans women to help with um, continued hair loss and also to block their T, especially for someone who's not tolerating the spiro. I'll drop the spironolactone and add in some finasteride, usually at five milligrams daily. There are some other anti androgens that have been talked about, you know, on the different uh, Reddit feeds and Facebook groups because other people in other countries are having these medications available to them. One of them is biclutamide. It has not been approved for hormone replacement therapy. It does come with the the risk of liver toxicity, whereas estradiol and spironolactone do not have that risk. And so it's always risk first benefit. And I don't have any of the major, um, guideline boards endorsing the use of Biclutamide yet. So, um, I haven't been using it in my practice. So just to let you know, in case you were wondering about that. So at the initial visit, um, these are the medications that get prescribed. I go over the Risks and side effects of these medications, which for spironolactone, we're definitely looking at kidney function to make sure that the potassium levels don't go up too high. I'm definitely counseling on dehydration because when people are concerned about the side effects of Spiro, a lot of those can be uh, avoided if people stay hydrated. It's a diuretic, it makes you urinate more. And so, if you're not taking in more water, you're going to have an increased risk of feeling lightheaded, dizzy, low blood pressure, those types of things. But my patients that work really hard to stay hydrated don't tend to have those side effects. Now, when you're dropping the testosterone, you know, it's really likely that people will have um, an increase in fatigue and weakness because you know you're going to have some muscle atrophy because you won't have the high levels of testosterone feeding those muscles and testosterone for a lot of people gives them energy and you know strength and so those things will be decreased at first especially until the estrogen levels increase so some of the risks uh, to estrogen or estradiol would be increased risk in blood clot that was more so the case when we weren't using a bioidentical or chemically identical form of estrogen like we are now. And so since we switched to the 17-beta estradiol that I explained earlier, those risks were greatly reduced. In fact, to the point where uh, the University of California, San Francisco has even said in their guidelines that the risk with ethanol estradiol, which is found in contraceptives, has a higher risk of blood clot than what we're giving our patients for hormone replacement therapy. So that means cisgender females who are on oral contraceptives have a higher risk of blood clot than trans women. I think that's really important to note because there's so much emphasis on the risk of blood clots with uh, the feminization process. It gets bashed a lot for that, like we're harming our patients when really uh, we're prescribing way more hormones to cis females for contraceptive than we are trans women and the risk for them is a lot higher. So it's very important to note that. And it's also you know, important to note that we do do tobacco abuse counseling with our patients and we make sure that if they are using tobacco containing products that we do urge them to discontinue because that does increase the risk of side effects. One of the other things that we sometimes talk about is the pituitary adenoma or prolactinoma. Um, these are benign growths of the pituitary gland, and you know they present theoretical risks, but honestly, the risk is very minor. In fact, we used to have to do a baseline prolactin level, but now it's not indicated unless that somebody's having symptoms of one of these uh, prolactinomas. So the guidelines actually say to this that with the administration of physiological doses of estrogen, there is no clear basis for an increased risk of prolactinomas in comparison to the population background rate in non-transgender women. So basically, that means that the risk for prolactinomas is not higher for trans women than it is for cis females receiving estrogen therapy. In fact, the risk is so low that they're asking us really not to even check for these or do baseline uh, blood work for this potential theoretical risk unless somebody is presenting with severe headaches, visual disturbances or excessive galacteria, which for lay people, that just means excessive uh, nipple discharge that has like a milk base to it. It's very normal to have a little bit of nipple drainage or discharge, uh, especially if there's nipple stimulation. But if someone was presenting with a lot and they had it accompanied severe headaches or vigil disturbances or other side effects or symptoms, then we would want to rule out the benign prolactinoma, which can be very easily managed uh, by endocrine with a couple of different medications and normally does not require surgery or anything like that. So it's just really important to note that because that's definitely something that's talked about in the community too and something that we do have to mention when we're going over informed consent, although I love not to because I feel like it causes excessive worry about something that's likely not going to happen. A side effect that's definitely worth talking about or a risk of estrogen hormone therapy is migraines. There's no like clear hormonal component to migraines, but we do know that sometimes when patients are taking estrogen-containing regimens that they do have an increase in frequency of hormone-related migraines. And so we don't really know who that might occur with. Uh, we did do a past medical history on all of our patients. And if someone had, you know, severe migraines or other issues that weren't already being well managed, that would be one of the medical issues that we'd want to try and manage or at least have, um, emergency migraine or, uh, medications available for in case when we do the, hormone replacement therapy treatment, they have an increase in um, migraines because obviously that's uncomfortable. It can uh, impair their ability to show up for work and all types of things. So that's something that we definitely screen for and educate on we already talked briefly about the mental health conditions, but I just wanted to really highlight again how important it is to make sure that underlying mental health conditions are, you know, well controlled. And if they're not, for the most part, that's something that our primary care office can manage. Um, if someone's having like psychotic features or schizophrenia, hallucinations, that would be definitely something that I'd have to refer out to psychiatry for. But for the most part, um, most depression, anxiety, panic disorders can be well managed within primary care, especially our primary care. We're very well versed with that. And so we'll just kind of go over that in the initial intake interview. So that's like the, the heart of, you know, the feminization process. One thing that I would like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet is the use of progesterone. It is a very heavily debated subject. <laughs> a lot of people go back and forth on whether or not to prescribe them or not. I definitely prescribe them. I have enough, um, have read enough articles uh, about it, looked at enough guidelines to feel very confident in my prescribing of this uh, medication. I usually prescribe the progesterone 100 milligrams nightly. Um, There's definitely different types of progesterone you can take, like the depo Provera, which is traditionally given for cis females for contraception. It's a once-every-three-month shot. I find patients gain a lot more weight with that one, and it's not something that I can administer in my office. So then that tends to be a little bit more of a barrier because then I have to refer out to where they can get it. Whereas the uh, progesterone that I prescribe is readily available and I can write for it and they can just take it every night. And that would be the micronized progesterone, which comes with the, the least amount of uh, side effects and risks, especially as it pertains to blood clot. Um, and it's really important to note, like I said, that all of my prescribing habits are based off of guidelines. And so a lot of the information about progesterone is anecdotal, but, you know, UCSF has... Said um, that they have enough literature and scientific evidence to say that the risk of progesterone is so small that they do not encourage providers to hold it. They do encourage providers to prescribe it because the anecdotal and documented benefits of progesterone definitely outweigh any risks. So, some of the risks that people talk about, like I said, would be the blood clot risk, which has been shown to be completely insignificant the risk of uh, depression. Uh, Sometimes progesterones can make people depressed. Probably about one out of 20 patients that I prescribe it to, I notice an increase in depressive symptoms. If they're already on something for the depression, we can titrate that medication um, and just kind of evaluate whether it's something that they want to treat or if they want to discontinue their progesterone therapy, because it's not a key player in the feminization process, but it may add benefit. And so if they want to, you know, try and see if it gives them the benefit, then they ought to try it. However, if their depression gets worse or debilitating or there's thoughts of self-harm or anything like that, then we definitely discontinue the medication and manage it um, appropriately. But some of the benefits that people have reported would be um, an increase in lobular breast tissue, which means like more fatty, natural appearing breasts. It also helps with the areola development. And I say also helps with, again, this is all anecdotal. We don't have a lot of scientific uh, studies to support the use of progesterone as far as like how what physical changes it may create, but just like uh, UCSF, there's been enough positive changes to report it to continue prescribing it than there have been any risks. It does help, too, with weight distribution. Um, It also helps with softening of the skin, and I've noticed in my patients that it helps reduce terminal hair growth, which means, like, beard hair. Basically, uh, it's not going to eliminate it, um, it, because that's never eliminated without a permanent you know, removal like electrolysis or laser, but it does reduce its regrowth and it helps soften it so that, you know, people can tend to go longer in between hair removal regimens. When progesterone is on board, I do counsel more on uh, the nipple discharge or galactorrhea, like we were talking about, because again, especially with nipple stimulation, it's more common to have a little bit of clear or milky uh, nipple drainage, and that's not anything that uh, we're concerned about. So, as I was saying, UCSF definitely endorses the use of progesterones, whereas Fenway does with caution. You know, they, they basically say, if you, if you really have to do it, only do it 10 days out of the month. But there's no real literature presented to support progesterone use in that manner. So, I definitely uh, lean back on the UCFS's guidelines this is because estrogen is highly correlated with gallbladder disease, which is why gallbladder disease is more common in cis women. This isn't necessarily a direct side effect of estrogen, so to speak, because as you're transitioning to female, it's more of a side effect of being female. So, and one of the other things I wanted to mention as a side effect of the feminization process in general would be an um, increase in gallbladder disease and an increase in infertility. The or the way that your body makes sperm is very heavily dependent on testosterone. Uh, we don't know what point you stop producing sperm. So if you're going to be having any type of sex with uh, somebody who is still able to get pregnant, then you definitely need to protect against pregnancy. Unless of course it's a desired outcome. We don't, you know, most clinics don't do routine sperm testing. If it's something that people are concerned about, they can definitely get that done at like a urology office um, or they can even look into sperm banking. But in general, We don't really, uh, we're not able to monitor that. But I will say there's a lot of other research to say that if you were to come off of your hormones, given some time and probably the addition of other medicines, you may be able to regain fertility and sperm production, but it's never guaranteed and it's definitely never promised. For the feminization effects, uh, within the first one to three months, people will definitely notice a change in their libido. It will usually decrease, which is why I also add in progesterone, because anecdotally, progesterone sometimes helps replace that decreased libido. You know, within three to six months, almost everyone will have some sort of breast development. And a lot of this is dose-dependent. So if people are listening who are non-binary and taking lower doses... Then you may not have those um sad, those changes in the three to six month period, but for anyone on like a full transitional dose, three to six months is when breast buds will form and you'll notice it um, some tenderness around the area and uh, gains in that size, decreased test volume tends to happen in three to six months that's because we're dropping that testosterone level and the those genitals are very much dependent on testosterone so they tend to shrink down in size Um, that can be reversible should you stop hormones and have your testosterone levels come back up but while you're on the hormone replacement therapy definitely a decrease in testicular size and volume a decrease in sperm production again we're not really sure what time frame that occurs on it because it's varied for everybody um in the first three to six months, we definitely notice a, a redistribution of body fat, decrease in the muscle mass, softening of the skin, um, and a decrease in the terminal hair, which is um, the beard growth and whatnot. Now, the decrease in terminal hair, while that can occur in the three to six months, I would say most likely it's six to 12 months where people will notice a huge change in that with the regrowth and that type of thing. And one thing that um, Fenway does not highlight, but... UCSF does, is the decrease in ejaculate. That is something I definitely counsel all my patients on. Ejaculate can turn watery, clear, thin to completely absent. Also has nothing to do with sexual satisfaction. Patients can still climax, but they just might not ejaculate after climax, which can be really alarming for people if you don't tell them about that first. But definitely with prostate stimulation and even traditional penetrative intercourse, uh, people can still climax. If erectile dysfunction does occur, which at some point most patients will struggle with that, if you have a lot of gender d- uh, genital dysphoria, it's probably not going to be a big deal for you. You're going to be happy that you can't get an erection. However, if you do want to maintain sexual function, because not all trans women hate their penises, then it's really important to discuss that with your provider because there are medications that we can give you for that. The more commonly known one would be sildenafil, which is generic for Viagra. And then Tadalafil, which is generic facialis. They both dosed a little bit differently. Um, a lot more planning with Sildenafil. usually you have to take it about an hour before any anticipated intimacy um, for it to work effectively. Um, it, both of them can cause some facial flushing, nasal congestion, headache. Uh, Tadalafil can be dosed, you know, upwards of every seventy-two hours or every three days because it uh, stays in the system longer. So there's a little less planning with that one, it gives people a little bit more flexibility, and most people prefer that. Since they're both gen- uh, generic now, both seem to be affordable through the GoodRx savings programs, at least in our area, and so worth a try if, if people want to maintain sexual function. And I'm sure you've all heard the commercials with those two drugs. If you have an, ele- an erection lasting longer than four hours, then you definitely need to seek uh, emergency medicine because that can be um, that's considered emerg- a medical emergency So I really hope you've enjoyed the information today. Again, if you have any questions, please send them over to Aaron at exclusivelyinclusivepodcast.com. I always love talking about hormone replacement therapy, feminizing and masculizing, so it's no problem for me to sit here and discuss it and explain it all. However, if I've overlooked something or need to clarify something or left something out, please feel free to email me and I can add it on to another episode. Well, thanks again for listening, guys. And remember, stay fierce, love everyone, and live your truth.